While Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we come before you this morning asking you to join us here in this place, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So for the last couple weeks, we've been reading and I've been preaching from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Last week specifically, we talked about how the incredibly profound moral teaching of that sermon, for instance, that anger is the same to God as murder and lust is the same to God as adultery. We talked about how this teaching ultimately served to show us, one, the kind of sinners we really are right down to our core, and to show us what kind of Savior Jesus came to be. That we are more profound sinners than we could ever admit, but that we have a more awesome Savior than we can possibly imagine, one who gives us an entirely new life. And now we have come to the last Sunday of Epiphany, the season after Christmas, during which we celebrate the many ways that Jesus is revealed to the world to be the Messiah. And each year, on the last Sunday of Epiphany, we are given the story of Jesus' transfiguration to read. I wanted to take just a second here at the start to get us situated on the calendar. In just a few days, we're going to begin Lent, the long and gloomy road toward the Passion and the cross that begins on Ash Wednesday when we remember that we are but dust and to dust we shall return. That season that ends on Good Friday when a holy God turned his back on his own son, a son who bore the sin of the world. But we're not quite in Lent yet. This is still Epiphany. So today we're going to bring to a climax the announcement of God that His Son has come into the world. This revelation that God incarnate has been made manifest among us. And even though the stories don't come one after the other in chronological time, the designers of our church calendar knew what they were doing. The Sermon on the Mount that we've been reading these last few weeks, and the transfiguration that we're going to look at today make sense together as the culmination of Epiphany. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John, Matthew writes in chapter 17, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, And his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is a hugely meaningful meeting. These are not just 
two randomly selected Old Testament characters invited to the mountaintop to have a conversation with Jesus. What's happening here is an incredibly symbolic gathering. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are all together, symbolizing, respectively, the law, the prophets, and the gospel. Moses, the law. Elijah, the prophets. Jesus, the gospel. It's like the words of God personified. All the ways he speaks to his people, by the law, through the prophets, and in his Son, the very Word incarnate, together, glorified. And seen in that light, you can totally understand Peter's suggestion, right? Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, this is awesome. We should put up some tents. Let's stay here. Let's just live in this glory, all of God's words gathered together. But that suggestion that they build tents and stay is actually where the story gets really interesting. Now, Matthew, in our reading this morning, doesn't actually do this, but in both Mark's and Luke's tellings of this story, found in chapter 9 of each of their Gospels, those authors insert a little apology for Peter after his suggestion that he build three dwellings. He didn't know what he was saying, they write. It's like they're saying, you'll have to excuse my friend. He's a good guy. He just wasn't thinking straight. Don't hold it against him. But that's weird, right? What Peter says seems to make so much sense. God's three ways of speaking, the law, the prophets, and his son, all together. Let's bask in it. Let's live with them all together as equals. What could be wrong with that? But something, it seems, definitely is wrong with that. And it's not just because Mark and Luke hint that Peter has suggested something out of order by apologizing for him. There's that booming voice from the cloud, isn't there? While Peter was still speaking, notice Peter gets interrupted here. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. This is certainly why Mark and Luke make sure to tell us that Peter didn't know what he was saying. They want to make sure that we catch the importance of what God is saying here. That in the end, only Jesus is God's son. Only Jesus is God's beloved. In the end, there is only Jesus. In the end, Jesus is alone. Now, I told you that the profound moral teaching of the Sermon on the Mount was the perfect lead-in to the transfiguration. And to help us see how that works, 
indeed to get a full appreciation of the story of the transfiguration to help us really understand this text and what's going on on that mountaintop, I want to look for a moment at two other pieces of Scripture this morning, one from the Old Testament and one other from the New. The first place we're going to go is to another time that Moses found himself surrounded by a cloud on a mountaintop. This is from the 24th chapter of Exodus, our Old Testament lesson assigned for today. Moses is called by God to go up on a mountain to receive the law. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses goes up. And a cloud covers the mountaintop for six days. And on the seventh day, God calls to Moses out of the cloud, eventually giving him the stone tablets upon which the law is carved. I want you to remember that phrase, that the law is carved in letters on stone. We're going to come back to that phrase again in just a minute. But for now, Moses has these stone tablets with the law carved on them, and he descends the mountain. Now, for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to skip over the whole episode with Aaron and the golden calf. You can read it for yourself. Uh, I'm going to skip over that. But when Moses comes down from the mountain, he has the people build the tabernacle that the Lord has commanded them to make, and he puts the tablets in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And then comes the part of the story that's going to help us understand what's really going on on the mountain of the transfiguration. Because in Exodus, whenever Moses goes in to the Holy of Holies to be with the law, to communicate with God, when he comes out, the experience is transformative. When he comes out from being with God's law, His face is shining. In fact, he's shining so brightly that the scripture says the people of Israel couldn't look at him. They had to avert their eyes. He had to wear a veil over his face. And so immediately we see the parallels, a similar shining and a similar mountain. And it all has to do with the holiness of God's law. Keeping that in mind, let's look at another text that we'll need to consider in the interpretation of all these things this morning. In fact, this text will interpret these things directly. (laughs) Praise the Lord for that, right? It's such a blessing when the Bible explicitly and authoritatively interprets itself. Pro tip, always let the Bible interpret the Bible. Jesus sometimes gives direct interpretation of his parables. And New Testament writers often comment directly on Old Testament texts. Let God's word interpret God's word. It is St. Paul who gives us the authoritative interpretation of the events of Matthew 17 in light of the biblical witness of Exodus 24 and those stories following. And he does so in his second letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Our sufficiency, St. Paul writes, is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, 
not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, your ears should prick up there, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now that's a lot. That's Paul. That's basically like two sentences that are two paragraphs long each. But this is what Paul is talking about. Remember how the transfiguration story ends. Moses and Elijah, glorious though they are, are brought to an end. They disappear. In the end, Jesus stands alone. A voice comes from the cloud. This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. To borrow Paul's language to interpret this text, Jesus' glory is so much more glorious than Moses and Elijah that it's as if Moses and Elijah have no glory at all. They're gone. So the gospel, the good news about God's saving work in Christ, is so glorious that it's as though the law and the prophets have no glory at all. Now don't miss this. This is only true by comparison. The law and the prophets do have glory, amazing glory, overwhelming glory, so much so that when Moses came out of the tabernacle after being in the presence of the tablets of the law, he was glowing. Just the reflected glory was too much for the Israelites to even look at. And the fact that the law and the prophets are glorious is a good reminder of something else that we talked about last week, the direction of Scripture. Remember, all of Scripture, by its own witness, points toward Jesus and his finished work on the cross, the good news for sinners. On the day of his resurrection, two of Jesus' disciples were walking on a road leading to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. You can read this story in Luke 24. And the resurrected Jesus appears to these two men and walks with them, but they don't recognize him. And they have a conversation about the momentous events that have just taken place, the crucifixion and resurrection. And Jesus, on this walk, takes the time to, as Luke records it, beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Interpret to them all in the scriptures concerning himself. Did you hear it? Moses and the prophets, they are pointing to Jesus. 
Here we have yet another help in interpreting what goes on on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, point to and find their fulfillment in Jesus. They are in themselves glorious. But it is as though they have no glory at all when compared to the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, and a Savior risen for the redemption of sinners. And so when the cloud clears and the voice has spoken, only Jesus remains alone. This is why the gospel writers apologize for Peter. This is why they acknowledge that he didn't know what he was saying. He was missing the fulfillment, even as it happened right in front of him. God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, was standing right there. These are not three equals, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, who might each point to each other. (coughs) Jesus is the one to whom the law and the prophets point. It is all about Jesus. And the transfiguration serves to point the entire history of God's interaction with the world, pointing as one to Jesus Christ. The transfiguration serves to point everyone and everything to Jesus. As he begins to preach the Sermon on the Mount, here's that final connection that I promised you. As he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives voice to this good news. And after he blesses the people in the Beatitudes and asks his followers to be salt and light to the world, and just before he teaches them just how short of the glory of God, of the law they have fallen, anger is murder, lust is adultery, He makes sure they hear a comforting word. I have not come to abolish the law, Jesus says, but to fulfill it. This announcement that Jesus came to fulfill the law is put into miraculous physical manifestation at the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, glorious. A reflection indeed of the very holiness of God. When Moses came out of the tabernacle in Exodus, the glory of the law was such that no one could look him in the face. And yet, as glorious as Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets are, they can't hold a candle to Jesus. Instead, they point to him. This is God's son. This is his beloved. This is the one name under heaven by which a sinner like you can be saved. And how does he accomplish this salvation? By fulfilling the law in another way. He is even more than the one to whom the law and the prophets point. Though he is that, he is more. He actually and literally in his earthly life fulfills the law. Remember the sermon. Jesus was always pure, 
always holy, never looked with lust, was only angry in complete righteousness. He always kept his promises. His righteousness did exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. The law's holiness, that holiness that was so bright that no one could even look at its reflection, the law's holiness was made manifest in Jesus. He lived it. He fulfilled it. And then, on the cross, He gave that fulfillment to you. For your sake, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, God made Jesus to be sin, even though He knew no sin, so that in Him, you might become the righteousness of God. So call on Jesus' name, the one name by which you can be saved. Do it right now, this morning. Believe that His righteousness given to you on the cross is sufficient to atone for your sin. Affirm your faith when we say the creed. Confess your sins and hear his absolution. Feast with us at his table. Do these things this morning for the first time. Or do them this morning afresh. Everything. Everything. The law. The prophets. Moses. Elijah. Every word we sing. Every word we pray. Every word we preach. Points to Jesus. He is God's Son. He has pleased the Almighty. He is your Redeemer. By His name, and by His name alone, you are saved. Amen.